Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 335th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Tim Wyman. Tim is the managing partner for the Center for Financial Planning, a hybrid advisory firm based in Southfield, Michigan, that oversees $1.5 billion in assets under management for 1,000 client households. What's unique about Tim, though, is how as a second-generation partner, he helped redesign the firm's organizational structure from siloed advisors of the founders to an ensemble practice, both restructuring the firm's compensation and in the process systematizing future partnership opportunities to both next-generation advisors and also key non-advisory team members to ensure their continuous internal ownership of the firm for the long term. In this episode, we talk in depth about why Tim and another G2 partner decided to transition the firm from their legacy siloed approach to an ensemble approach, both to fulfill the vision of first-generation partners and to evolve the firm into an, an enterprise and create equitable partnership opportunities for all employees of the firm. How Tim and his firm worked with Philip Halaviv to develop their Center for Financial Planning Path to Partnership document that outlines buy-in options and the quantitative and qualitative criteria that team members have to meet to become a partner. And why Tim and his firm implement a monthly scorecard called the State of the Center and a biannual report using the old Moss Adams benchmarking ratios to monitor the financial health and productivity of the business. We also talk about why Tim and the firm don't assign a dedicated client service administrator for each lead advisor, but instead ensure that each client has a dedicated CSA to keep the client relationship consistent, even and especially as planner and ownership transitions occur. Why Tim and the firm ensure their newer associate planners are involved in all client-facing activities instead of just working on back office and financial planning support so that they can learn different relationship management skills in real time modeled from their senior advisors themselves. And how Tim leverages the firm's proprietary CRM and its integration into Tamarack to automate tasks and compile data for their annual review reports for clients, cutting down his total meeting prep time to just 15 minutes per client. And be certain to listen to the end, where Tim shares how he was surprised by how much complexity is involved in growing and scaling a firm past 10 and then 20 employees, but feels rewarded by seeing how much of an impact the 30-person firm now makes. Why Tim feels that it's important for younger, newer advisors to find a mentor they truly respect as a person, as an advisor early in their careers, even if it's not a formal mentorship relationship, to build better career opportunities for themselves. And why Tim believes that developing a successful career path doesn't always have to be complicated and can be built upon working just a little bit harder than others and focusing on mastering just a few core skills around writing, speaking, and of course, treating clients well. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Tim Wyman. Welcome, Tim Wyman, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. I'm super excited to have this conversation. So thanks for having me. Uh, You know, I I was thinking I consider myself to be a student of our profession, and I'm always looking to learn and share what I can, and I can't think of a better person to to have that chat with. So again, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thank you. I I appreciate your willingness to join as well for I like a conversation I'm really excited to have about just the like the the real world challenges and dynamics that start to come as as advisory firms really begin to scale up. 
uh, you know, we we published this article a bunch of years ago about like the the different stages of growth that advisory firms go through. There's sort of like this startup stage, or just the, you're an advisor on your own and and like just trying to get enough clients to survive and get enough revenue. And then eventually it like it starts going well. You're getting enough clients. And then you hit this wall, like this capacity wall. I got too many clients. Like I just I got to start hiring some more advisors. And so then you start shifting from being a solo advisor to a multi-advisor business or an ensemble. And then there's like a whole bunch of different problems that come up. You got to create all this infrastructure, like you have to make systems and process and you need departments of people who like manage people who do things like middle management appears in your advisory firm. There's, there's all the additional complexities that, that begin to come as the business really starts scaling up. Uh, including then you got to figure out like, well, how are you handling ownership? Like if there's all these people and all these decisions that get made, is everybody who's an owner a decision maker or not? And if it's not, like how do you make that transition? How do you introduce new owners without infringing existing ones? And just all this complexity basically that starts coming, there's sort of this like more money, more problems phenomenon. I feel like that begins to occur. And so, you know, I know you're, you're a, uh, a firm that that's closing in on a billion and a half of dollar uh, dollars under management. You you are living and have lived this stage of the journey, and so I I'm just I'm excited to talk about the dynamics of like what really happens and what do you really have to deal with as the business starts scaling up, as you have to really build infrastructure to support advisor teams, as you really have to figure out what ownership and succession planning looks like if you want to sustain the business. Uh, uh, internally, and just how you navigate that in practice as it's as it's played out real time for you. Yeah, I wish you would have written that article uh, in 1991 when I got in, <laughs> into this profession. It would have made things a lot easier, and um, maybe I would have chosen a different profession knowing all those walls. But um, you know, fortunately, we've been able to break through a lot of them, uh, those walls, like a lot of folks. But y- yeah, you mentioned that the transfer of leadership and ownership, uh, for us at least, has been one of the most difficult transitions. And and I think that's the same for, for many firms. And, you know, we're, we're not unlike other businesses where it's very possible that the great majority of our firms actually won't survive the founder's retirement. Um, because I think the reality is for, in our profession at least, most firms are still owned uh, and managed by, by the founders. So there's that old quote from uh, Yogi Berra who says, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. And that reminds me of, of succession planning. You know, there's been a ton written about succession planning, but it's hard, it's difficult. Uh, and fortunately, it's also rewarding. So, so as we as we delve into this, I think to start, I I'd love to hear you just like paint the picture for us of the advisory business as it exists today, so we can understand like where where is the business now that you've spent the the better part of a couple of decades building up to, and then we can talk a little bit more about like how that's evolved and what that journey's been like over the past past several years. Yeah, um, I'm going to use the center as uh, we refer our firm to, and, and we're a privately held professional services firm founded in 1985 by three wonderful individuals, um, and uh, they all have retired, uh, 2003, 2014, 2015, respectively. And I've got to say that we're proud uh, to say that they're all clients of the firm. I just had a review meeting with one of them before this call. 
Um, so the center serves 30 team members and uh, about a thousand clients representing roughly 1.5 billion in, in assets. Uh, the firm has seven equity partners. Five of those are planners. Uh, two are uh, operations-focused um, folks. And you might find it of interest that uh, currently we have, out of the, the seven, four are men, three are women. Uh, and we have a long history of female ownership and leadership here. Um, two of our founding found, uh, founders uh, were women. Um, women have made up, I think, like 60% of ownership throughout our history Today, 40% of our planners are women, and, and I think out of 30, uh, eight, 18. So it, it's something unique and something we're, we're very proud of. So, so I'm just trying to vision overall. So 1.5 billion of, of, of assets, so I'm going to presume like most advisory firms, we talk about the proverbial 1%, but by the time you get um, breakpoints, householding of clients, the occasional large client with a discounted rate, you know, usually we end up with a a revenue yield that's closer to like 70 basis points, give or take a little. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to guess you're like 10 or $11 million of revenue. Is that, that fair? that's, that's fair. And, and you're spot on our um, average return on assets historically has been right at 0. 0.7, 0. 0.71. Uh, and you know, today we're, that would put us in the 10 and a half to $11 million of okay. revenue. Okay. So, right, so you give or give or take market on any yeah. <laughs> on any on any particular day. So, um, so like good healthy place for the the firm overall, right? Like north of ten million of uh, of revenue across a thousand clients. So, like average, obviously uh, individuals vary, but like average client is 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 almost a million and a half dollar. So, like you've got a a good fairly affluent clientele that pays a pretty good pretty good fee for pl per clients to run and scale the advisory business. Yeah. Historically, when we, uh, you know, do benchmarking uh, with the uh, various studies, usually our average client is, a is slightly on the lower side. Um, historically, I would say we've been able to um, serve, I'm going to say quite well and, and quite profitably, uh, that $500,000 client. Okay. Uh, but certainly, you know, we have relationships that are over a hundred million as, as well. But um, I think the 1.5, as far as an average is, is a, is a fair number. I like to say, you know, these are, most of these are folks who have done a really good job saving money. They need their money in retirement. And uh, fortunately we, we can, we can serve them, them well. Um, I was going to say, if I might, our, uh, might be helpful, like just looking at our structure or our functions, yeah. Uh, you know, the 30, we have 10 lead financial planners, um, you know, who would all be CFP practitioners. Uh, plus, I have a law degree. We have a couple CFAs, MBA. We have two associate financial planners right now. And and we think of them um, more as a resident in residency versus a centralized department. And in the past, we, we did view it as a centralized department. So what's the what's the difference between well, being in residency versus a centralized department for you? Yeah, I mean, we, we view these folks need to be in meetings, uh, okay. and it's not just to take notes. Um, they and and we also make sure that they are uh, the lead planner on some relationships versus just being in a what I'll call a centralized department, um, cranking out financial plans, doing research okay. only. Okay, so so uh, 
So in this context, like just really in a client facing role, like I, I, granted the industry uses a lot of different different labels for things, but I, I I sort of envision this like really in the associate advisor role, like actually in client meetings, interacting with clients, as opposed to a call like a para planner role that might be more of a purely back office support, often centralized support function. Yeah, and we we went that way for a little while, and it I just it it didn't seem to work for us. Um, I felt like our planners were not progressing um, as fast as I thought they could. It was, you know, so it, it's interesting as I think about the the structure. I think was holding people back. So can you talk about that more? Like what was what was holding back or limiting about trying to trying to put put new advisors through centralized planning departments. I do feel like that's a it's a fairly common model for how a lot of advisory firms try to bring in new talent. Yeah. I think the the relationship management skills um, are are uh, progress much faster if if you're truly responsible mm-hmm. for uh, not only being in a meeting but being maybe uh, in charge of part of the meeting. Okay. Um, and and you are viewed uh, with some clients as as the lead planner. Um, certainly, there's plenty of resources uh, available uh, if if needed. But um, th- those relationship building skills, I I think, are so Im- important. And you know, I get a chuckle when um, I in a meeting with a an associate financial planner, and they'll start describing a a, a solution to a client. And I'm like, but yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, you know, they apparently liked how I uh, presented that. <laughs> um, and I, I just think they and the the associate financial planner. I think it's more rewarding work work for them. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll admit, I when I reflect back on like early early days of my of my career as well, there were there was a similar phenomenon that I. Uh, I got a good amount of time with a number of the different partners at several of the firms that I was at really early on. So I got exposed to a whole bunch of different different ways of communicating and delivering planning, planning ideas and concepts. And I definitely ended out like I became an amount like an amalgamation of all of them. Right. It was yeah. like I I really liked John's way of like warming up and getting to know new clients, but I really liked like Ken's way of delivering a, a, a financial plan, but I liked John's way of like talking clients off the ledge. And, you know, as as you do more of that as an advisor with clients, like you, you find your own words and your own language and style and like it, it comes together over time. Yeah. Fi- finding what you don't, what doesn't fit for your uh, personality is just mm-hmm. as, as valuable. I agree. And I love, you know, uh, having meetings and uh, we'll kind of debrief after and um, say, hey, you know, what did you think about this? And and how might you have explained it differently? Um, it, it's just a good partnership. And like you said, when you can see a variety of different planners uh, truly in action in a meeting, I think the growth can happen a lot quicker. Is that actually a structure for you? Like the, this like debrief process, or you just try to find moments when interesting moments where they are and talk about them? Um, I would say uh, it's more ad hoc and me personally with my calendar. Okay. If it doesn't happen yeah. immediately, it's not happening. Yeah. And, uh, 
So 10 uh, lead financial planners, a couple associate planners right now. We have uh, 10 client service associates or managers. A couple of these folks also have the CFP designation, uh, but they uh, would rather be in a client service role. Um, I'm going to give you the the half, three and a half uh, people dedicated to our investment department. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. We have two full-time uh, technology or IT folks. Uh, one is, uh, I'm going to say, uh, and very talented, uh, by the way, but um, heavy infrastructure, I'm going to call it. And then we have a second person who is uh, kind of uh, putting out fires for people, you know, on yep. their, their desktops. Yep. Uh, there, is, there is an interesting phenomenon as the business grows to a certain size. It's like the number of people that have the like, my computer's not working. It won't boot right. My camera, like my mic just won't work. I set it to the right mic, but it's not coming through. Like my camera won't turn on. Like someone help me with this. And like, you need a person, <laughs> you need a person to help. We've tried other solutions. We've worked with uh, outsourcing and having, I'm going to call desktop help, where our folks could call someone. I would suggest there was a lot, lot more frustration doing it that way. Now, at the same time, it certainly was more uh, cost effective, um, but we we have found a benefit by having a, a person who's you know sees themselves as part of our team and they're here every day. And it's interesting. I had nothing to do with the decision, but I think it was brilliant because it goes back to about 1997. We had a a full-time staff member who I'm putting in the IT area, um, but it was more of uh, helping our team be more productive, more efficient. Um, She and one of our partners, Matt Chope, actually began um, a uh, proprietary CRM at that time. Oh wow! Uh, with work with workflows and uh, you know, I mean a simple one, but you know printing a number ten a- envelope. She was watching five people do it fifteen times a day, uh-huh. and saying, "Would it make your life easier if I had a button, you know, from this database that just went to the printer right away?" Yep. You know, so we were spoiled. And then um, she, for one reason or another, she was uh, not with the firm anymore. Um, She was on a contract basis with us. And so then we went to this managed services. And now we're back to, I think, uh, for our size, having two full-time team members is, um, is, is a right number. So one is the, like, just... As you put it, like IT put out the fires. My my computer's not working. Set up my equipment. Like thirty team members. There's always some people having some some kind of tech issues. So what's the other one doing? Like, are you still are you still maintaining this proprietary CRM system? And like, are they are are, are they managing that, or are they building other tech, or are they just like more deeply involved in core tech? Yeah, I seventy five percent I would say is core tech. Uh, okay. network I- issues, uh, certainly cybersecurity type issues. And then we still do have this um, proprietary uh, database that has evolved over time. Um, we use Tamarack CRM in addition to this application that is, and I'm expending all my knowledge, uh, built out of Microsoft Access and Microsoft SQL. 
And we basically have, uh, I'll call it an automation tool that we're um, bringing in information from a variety of sources. And it looks and feels a lot like um, a financial planning software minus crunching the numbers. So like our annual review meetings with a few um, punches of, of buttons, I can have a complete annual report that is covering topics from cash flow to net worth to insurance to financial independence to estate planning. Interesting. So, uh, so I'm just trying to visualize, nothing too technical because neither of us are the are the IT team. Uh, so I'm visioning like a a database that basically has just client data, including not just the CRM-ish sort of data, but the financial planning kind of data. So Tamarack, I guess, sits on top of that or, or draws from it. So some of the data can be there. But when you just get to things like producing financial planning reports and your, your client deliverables, you don't have to build it out of the CRM and planning software. You're building it out of this database that you've created over time to just automate your your direct workflows and deliverables because you've been building this for 30 years. That, that's a fair um, representation. And I mean, just one more detail, for example, in the insurance, I don't know if anyone else has ever had a conversation, let's say, what what is going to be the strategy around uh, managing the long-term care risk? Mm-hmm. And it, I'm looking in a client's record, you know, I have basically our, our analysis that says, you know, we're self-insuring um, this risk. We, it, we've actually earmarked some assets in a, in a previous non-qualified annuity for this reason. Like I used to dispense that advice, if you will, and it would go somewhere in a black hole and I would have to remember every single year what the strategy was. I mean, you know, so right. it's, it's captured in our, in our database. And so, so um, you've got like report, like I'm almost thinking like report templates or like educational client content templates so that you you can pull from that more more directly and not have to keep rewriting elements of the plan deliverables exactly you can i'm I'm excited about it i always have it in like i said it has evolved immensely over the the years and and we're we're putting um, time and, and money into it and this is one of those areas that I think uh, maybe the pendulum is swinging. You know, at one point, I remember the consensus being, hey, uh, firms, there's no reason that you should even consider being in the, the, uh, the software, the application business. And then it seems like, well, okay, this whole integration uh, in, yeah. in our space uh, isn't happening, folks. So maybe we do need some sort of proprietary overlay or, or maybe it is a good investment. And, and that's where we're at right now. So, uh, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering that context, like, does it integrate? Did you create your own integration? Like, do you have to double data entry into your database and then into CRM, into planning software? Uh, or, or have you figure out how to make that, make that data flow? Cause you've got a technology people who can do that. Uh, most of it, it flows. Um, I'm trying to think we use, I, I mentioned Tamarack CRM that there, there's no double entry there. Um, for Money Guide Pro that we use for retirement planning, crunching of numbers, that is a second uh, data entry. 
We haven't okay. haven't figured that one out. And then we also use Tamarack's Advisor View, uh, and that does uh, integrate with this program. Okay, so uh, so when you actually get down to the just the good old fashioned financial planning projections, right? Money guide, are they on track for retirement? You've got to you've got to rekey that. But I'm I'm guessing from the nature of what you're describing, like ongoing client review meetings, you're probably not necessarily doing full Money Guide Pro reprojections. You're doing other some other type of annual report that you just create directly from your database in the first place. That that's fair. And you know, when a uh, a client has a ninety five percent probability of success based on our our uh, variables and assumptions, we don't feel a need that we need to review that every single right. year. So that's a note in our financial annual report um, that essentially says you know based on our last analysis probability of success 95%. So but or I, I like Money Guide Pro as a uh with the client uh it's a great experience um but quite frankly other than retirement planning the combined details pages I I don't feel like I use much of it. We're at so so I guess help me understand what like what's in your annual report that you are like that you are using if it's if it's not if it's not what we get from from money guy like what what does the firm produce and bring into that annual client meeting uh one major component is a, a net worth statement and we archive it so you know it, we can show a 20-year net worth if we uh, wanted to so in 2022, when you know markets are, are not performing well, it's always a good thing to say, you know what, let's just go back 10 years and look at your net worth statement and, and feel good about the progress you've and, made. And that's captured because every time you do an annual update of net worth, you're doing that in your database. You build an automation to create a net worth statement from the numbers you punch in your database. But that means you've every year you did one of these in your database, you've got 20 years worth of net worth statements that you created and so now you've also got a 20-year progression yeah and it's it's a simple archive you know button uh and now we've captured that that forever and it um we custody assets uh raymond james uh, financial services and any accounts there our system automatically updates every day uh, okay. it's, but certainly house uh, outside accounts, uh, we need to obtain that information from the client. Most of the time it's before the meeting. Sometimes we update it at the meeting and, and again, easy to archive. So what else is in the annual report besides net worth statement? Well, we're addressing, I'm going to say, every uh, discipline of financial planning. Um, we're, you know, we have uh, income taxes. We we can show the last two year uh, comparison. Um, that's in our, our our system. We don't uh, automate that, so we're not using um, Holista Plan. Okay. Um, it's uh, FP Alpha is on our list. I think we're close to signing an agreement with those folks. Um, that'll be be something new. So income taxes and what's going on over the past two years in income taxes. So what what else comes comes through in this in this deliverable? Um, estate planning. We don't. Um, and this is one time. You know, we get documents and we list out all. Um, I'll say the the fiduciaries and their documents and beneficiaries are listed there in one place 
So at a meeting, we can easily mm. scan those. And if there's, and many times a client, you know, will go, oh, I didn't know I had him or her on there. And if it, I find if it's not front and center every single year, things get a uh, better chance of getting missed. Okay. So very cool. So what what else? Like I'm fascinated by the list here. So we got network <laughs> statement, income taxes and what's going on over the past two years, estate planning with a particular focus on the the who's, the people, like who are all the fiduciaries and trustees and executors and and powers of attorney and guardians, who are all the beneficiaries, who's getting what money. Uh, so what what else appears in this? Um, there's an investment planning section. Um, in our meeting, we would use advisor view with the client. But you know those little things like, I don't know, there might be a, an inherited stock that, that we all know we're not going to sell. Where do you document that? Yeah. Um, or, you know, there's, there's, I'm looking at this one, there's 8,000 a month coming out of a trust account where, where do you document that? So everyone knows what's, what's happening. Right. Um, okay. So that, that would, that, that's a, a section. Um, there's a section on, on kids and um, education planning. Okay. Um, you know, many times there might be uh, in that area, the so-called planning is uh, how we're going to distribute monies. You know, we're going to take uh, I'm just using an example. We're going to wait the last two years of college to use MESP money uh, because it might not be subject to, uh, you know, students' uh, financial aid calculation, things okay. like that. Okay. So, you know, what's our, what's our uh, like, how are we drawing down uh, Michigan 529 plans as and coordinating it with student aid and the rest? Like the, the plan, like literally the plan. The strat, yeah. I, some call it, you know, the strategy. Um, so how about social security? You, you talk with a client, they're 60 years old, you've done the analysis in money guide pro and you know, it's uh, one spouse is going to take it at full retirement age. The other is going to wait to age 70. Well, we have a place where we can put it one time it's there. Certainly we can change our mind, but everyone knows what the, the strategy is. So other, other sections, oh, you have to, this is a great list. I'm, <laughs> I'm just wondering now, like, so. Net worth statement, uh, income taxes, estate planning, investment planning, kids education planning. Yeah, we'll we'll start with the uh, is kind of personal information check in. You know, uh, any major expenses? Are are you traveling? Um, selfishly, if they are, I want to make sure that we know about it so we can get money uh, available, uh, liquid. Um, if there's been any uh, changes in their you know personal life. Okay. Okay. It's, I guess, one of the benefits of a, a firm that's been around 38 years is is a lot of trial and error in this this area. And um, I was laughing the other day. We do call it an annual review report. I love the idea of people calling it, you know, an annual strategy and tactics uh, meeting. But as if we were to change the name of it, it's not so simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. This is the pro- this problem, Air Force. This is the problem with systematizing. Like that word probably appears in like 27 different places in various documents and automations. Like the amount of work it takes to change the word once you've systematized it is kind of tedious. Yes. 
And I know you separately said you'd be willing to share an example of this out to our advisor community, which I, I really appreciate. So we'll, uh, we'll post an example copy of the annual review report to the show notes of this episode. So for those who are listening, this is uh, episode 335. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 335, we'll have Tim's uh, sample annual review report post in the show notes for you to check out. So so I'm kind of envisioning a document that I guess are like, I'm thinking it's similar-ish to a lot of how a lot of advisors produce financial plans with the caveat that just the the projection-y stuff isn't necessarily there because that's Money Guide Pro calculator engine things. It's it's let's talk about your income taxes and where your tax has been for the last two years. Let's we're not drawing the estate diagram to calculate your estate taxes. We're making a list of the fiduciaries and the beneficiaries and and uh and who the people are. Uh we're not projecting your 529 plans growth, we're documenting the spend down strategy from it when your kids are actually in college and you need to coordinate with the timing of financial aid and FAFSA. Like it's, that's, it, that's like thinking fair. about that well. You, you are. And, and in my experience, um, even Money Guide Pro, I think it's um, relevant, meaningful when people are uh, just before retirement. Answering the do I have enough money question. After that question or that time period, I, I don't find that clients um, have a need for it. I think they're looking for their advisor to say, you're on track. You don't have to prove it with uh, uh, the, the numbers. That's just my experience. So this helps cover as well. I was going to ask when you're talking about your associate advisors being more in the meetings of like, Okay, but do they also still like do the financial plan number crunching and building? Like, do you still have that function? But I guess it sounds like in practice, uh, that's actually really heavily automated for you because of the the investments that you've made into the internal technology over years. Yeah, I, my meeting prep time, per, my personal meeting prep time, uh, can be fifteen minutes. And, and I'm talking about addressing all the disciplines of financial planning, not just an investment review. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. And, that- and fortunately, uh, some people before me had, uh, I'll just say, the, the wisdom, the vision um, to think in those terms. And, and I would say uh, a lot of our team does think that way. You know, it's it's not don't do things just that, you know, one time there's there's a lot of people in the firm. We have at least we have a thousand clients. We, we have closer to 600 to 650 annual review meetings a year. We have to be very efficient. Right. And this, I'll say, platform, we believe um, helps us do that. Because at some point, maybe we talk about, you know, our lead planners, the, the target relation, number of relationships is 150. Okay. Which is higher than many, at least benchmarks, uh, would suggest. But you feel it's manageable given how much faster meeting prep is for you thanks to the technology investments. Technology and, you know, I mentioned our 10 client service uh, managers, associates. Um, they they are every bit of a paraplanner um uh, technical expertise. Okay, which so, is which is why some of your CSAs have uh, um, like CFP certification as well. Correct, correct. Yeah, they're they're not just answering phones and transferring money. Um, they're they're they are very uh, efficient and important to our our annual reviews. Okay. And so, I guess, like, I mean, I'm assuming that it's not a coincidence, like ten. 
10 lead planners, 10 client service associates, managers? Like, is it essentially a, like, are these all one-to-one assigned teams? Like 10, 10 lead planners have 10 CSAs assigned to them in like 10 two-person teams? There's um, definitely some, uh, I'll say, commonality, or maybe I answer it this way. I have uh, at least three CSAs that I work with. Okay. With different with different clients, so I, it's really more about focusing on the client. When you have ownership transition, planner transitions. Um, we find that having the CSA be consistent uh, is very important to the client relationship. So okay. I would rather have me, if I can use the word inconvenienced, rather than the client. Interesting. So as you've done advisors retiring, advisors transitioning, and you want to make sure that the clients transition well to the to the new advisor part of what you're doing to support the client is the CSA remains the same. So the client has a continuous sort of continuous relationship and point of contact with at least someone on the team yes. as, their, as their lead advisor changes with the caveat then that as you do that over time, CSAs... So, so the CSAs have dedicated clients and the advisors have dedicated clients but the advisors don't necessarily have dedicated CSAs because as clients transition from one advisor to another, the CSA goes with the client, which means they can end out supporting multiple advisors depending on where those clients went over time. Yeah. I think um, <laughs> I've had so many clients when there's a transition say, well, yeah, that's that's great, but is Jeanette going to stay with me? <laughs> you know, uh-huh. not Tim. Uh, it's is Jeanette going to be there? And and so there is comfort in having that that continuity. Um, if we think a client is fine with any CSA, it is best to try getting uh, a CSA and a planner the majority of clients together. Okay. But um, that that that's that's too it's too simple. It it just doesn't work that way. Okay. And again, I don't think it's in the I don't think for many clients it's in their best interest. So so lead advisors really get the driving support from their CSAs who are 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 rather paraplanner trained beyond a just called sort of a, a purely administrative, right? Answering phone scheduling means transferring money kind of functions. So then when you get two associate advisors in there, I'm presuming then like the assignment of associate advisor isn't necessarily a function of who gets the like uh who needs the client support it's more directly like who's ready to train an associate advisor and and gets assigned that way yeah so i look at or try to to suggest that uh, an associate financial planner should be involved in a meeting when one of two things, really. One, if it's a good opportunity for for training and an apprenticeship, like there's something going on with that client that will really benefit our associate financial planner. That's a good reason. And, and the second good reason is if there's a uh, future transition potentially of that client to this associate financial planner. Okay. So, uh, so I so I'm envisioning that in practice the primary sort of placement of an associate advisor is alongside another advisor that may be retiring or transitioning out and the bulk of their like client meetings and activity are attached to that person but then if there's some other interesting client planning opportunity they may get pulled into 
some other advisor and client meetings just to to get to see that and be a part of it and learn from it. Yeah. Our senior financial planners, I think, do a good job um, at looking for opportunities for associate financial planners only because, you know, we, they had the same, uh, the gift, the same benefit. Um, our three founders, uh, Dan, Marilyn, and Estelle, were uh, were phenomenal, and and any time you could get in a meeting with them, you know, was was really special because you learned so much, and that's how it's happened. Uh, uh, you know, the next generation. So I think we're always looking for opportunities for our associate financial planners. So I am also wondering, just processing more of like lead planners with this target of 150 client relationships. I guess it's so I understand the meeting, like the annual uh, review report are, are you, is there an expectation of other meetings throughout the year or is your primary service model? Like we anchor around this annual meeting with an annual review report and then we handle whatever they need as they come in, but we're not necessarily like outbound pushing two or three meetings a year. Yeah. One of, um, well, I'd say a few things, the decisions in the year over the years that I think personally were, were positive. One is we never, we never spent time on quarterly investment reports, sending those out. And second, we never, um, our service model was not three or four meetings a, a year. Okay. Our, our main, uh, and we have standards of, of service and I would describe our service model and it's very much process driven in our CRM where yes, there is an annual review meeting. We have a six month uh, check-in call, six months from the time of that meeting. Okay. Uh, you know, a task comes off and says, hey, planner, um, review notes and, and make contact with the client to make sure everything is, is fine. And then we have another quarterly task that um, will generate if that client hasn't had what I call meaningful contact with the firm. Meaningful contact can mean a, a personal email, phone call, meeting for another purpose. Okay. So, uh, and, and so literally like you're, you're tracking if the clients had a touch point and and there's like it's just some like if if then based trigger in the in the CRM system like if there has not been a a personal phone call or meeting for another purpose so the client hasn't had a human to human touch point then prompt advisor to do a check in email or call outreach if they have then fine then they've had a a, a touch point this quarter and we are going to have a uh, either an annual review meeting or a six month check and call coming up next quarter because now we'll be two quarters out. Yeah, and you know, there's always from a meeting. Uh, may, I shouldn't say always. Many times there are tasks or things that have to be done later in the year. The easy example is if you look at my November task list. When November comes, I'm going to have a, a a list of people who I need to call, meet, review Roth conversions. Right. But okay. I'm not going that that's based on the, the client. So after a meeting, I'm going to put that follow up task in CRM, hopefully, quite frankly, forget about it um, until that time. So now help help me understand just the the last parts of the the org chart and structure we had. We had 10 lead advisors and then two associates. We had 10 client service associates supporting them three and a half ish dedicated to investments, two full-time 
tech IT. So there there should be like a couple of seats yep. left on the on the on the proverbial bus. So, so who, I missed. Left? I missed. Uh, we have a, a person in a quarter, person and a half dedicated to compliance. Okay. We have uh, one and a half dedicated to marketing kind of communications. And then we have one uh, HR slash bookkeeping. Okay. So that, that gets us somewhere around that 31 probably. Okay. Yeah. So um, so who has the management functions in this environment? Because you're at a size where you know businesses almost inevitably start forming into like department structures right. with people who lead departments and just the, you know, it's nice to talk about a flat organization, but you don't literally want like one CEO with 30 direct reports. That gets a little unmanageable. At some point, like you need a couple of a couple of layers at at least of management. So like where and how do managers appear in this? Sure. Um, our, and I'm, I'm looking at our org, org chart, our, um, di- our director of investments um, manages, you know, the other uh, couple people in investments. She also manages our compliance and IT. Okay. We have a director of financial planning who manages our um, fi- I'll, Associate financial planners, we have the next uh, layer is financial planner. I, as managing partner, actually am responsible for our senior financial planners. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I at one time did all most of these areas, I should say. And then the third is a director of operations um, who's, who's splitting her time. It's interesting. She's going to be a fantastic financial planner. Um, but she manages our our CSA, our client service area, as well as our uh, HR person. Okay, so it sounds like a, a f- sort of a four person core leadership team. Then, like director of investments who has investments and then scooped up compliance and IT. Director of financial planning who has the associate planners and planners. Director of operations who has the CSAs and HR, and then. As managing partner, you've got sort of that leadership team, and then the senior financial planners are still are are still rolling up to you. Yeah, when I think of how we operate, you know, our we have these seven partners. Not everyone is involved in the day to day running of the the business. Actually, four of the seven are a part of our operations committee. Um, that meets every Monday for an hour and a half. I should also state there's one our direct or our uh, senior marketing person, communications person is also on that operations committee. So a total of of uh, six, and that is the group that is responsible for day to day management. So are are the directors that we just highlighted like investments in financial planning and operations are all those people partners or not not necessarily they, they are they are okay Th- those are our partners and I may not have done the best job like director of operations there's actually a second person um, a CSA manager who for example is reviewing professional development plans with our individual CSAs. Okay. And the same in our IT, you know. Um, so we're not, we usually look at how many direct reports someone has. And um, seven, I think, is the highest. Okay. 
and that seems to work. At one time, I believe I had 15, and we all learned that I'm not only a terrible manager, but I just couldn't do it with 15. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of direct reports. Yeah. So, so primary day-to-day decision-making happens in this operations committee, managing partner, director of operations, director of investments, director of financial planning, and senior marketing person who sit in on this for one and a half hours every Monday to just look at what's happening in the business and make make day-to-day, week-to-week decisions in the business. Yeah. Like a lot of your guests, we do run on EOS. Okay. And- you know, we've actually been doing that since like 2014, I think. Oh, wow. You were really early. To yes. I I was shared, the book was shared with me. And in the um, the, the beginning of the book, it, um, uh, spotlights three businesses. And I knew them all f- from this area. No. They're, they're all successful and they're always at every kid's baseball game. And I said, why wouldn't we want to do this? And it's been um, it's been so helpful. And like your other guests, I'm sure, as far as running a track, uh, your business on a, on a track, it, it, it's been very helpful. Okay. So that, so that Monday meeting is, is a classic L, like weekly L10 meeting. That's correct. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and so you've got like a business scorecard of the the weekly numbers you're looking at to make sure that things are on track, and then you're you're digging into into weekly issues. Yeah, we we actually we have a we call the state of the center, and it's a monthly scorecard. We did not believe a weekly uh, made sense for us. Okay, and it's. It has a variety of different data points that we spend a significant amount of time on each month. You know, certainly assets and revenue and expenses are a part of it. Um, but looking at uh, client service and our net promoter score, um, while planner compensation is not based on a grid, we can tell you every single month by planner, you know, how many lead relationships, what's their assets, what's the revenue that they manage, how much of that did they originate from day one. Um, you know, we're, we're tracking clients by CSA. That helps us determine when we need to uh, hire folks. Um, so so where I'd like that, to think we're data dependent. Where does that level of just like data, data tracking and like business intelligence reporting come from? Have you, have you built that in Tamarack? Does that come from your internal mm. database structure? Yeah. Much of that comes from Tamarack CRM. Okay. Yes. And I, you know, I, I'd be uh, less than uh fourth. Some of this is, is certainly manual, right. but. Uh, a great majority for planners that that's a hit of a button. We can have that report at any time. Okay. Uh, and so this monthly data, do you like as from the leadership end, do you have to have a separate monthly meeting to talk about the monthly data or does this, does this data come into the the weekly meeting? Just like one of, one of every four meetings is the data meeting. Yes, it, it's it's uh, part of our operations uh, meeting. Uh, one of the weeks, we'll say, um, usually the second one of the month is when we'll make sure we spend time on state of the center. 
And, you know, these are all uh, one partners and our non-partner is, is, uh, an emerging leader. She's, she's in this meeting for a reason and, um, she has access to this data. And the last part to this is, and we do this twice a year, we still call it the Moss-Adams ratios. You know that, okay. if you can think of that, uh, that report yeah. that has every ratio, active clients per financial professional, you know, revenue yeah. per active. We, we update that in uh, June and, and January of every year. And that's all that's always telling. And um, again, we're not trying to be like everyone else, but it, it does point some things um, out where we have to at least ask ourselves some some questions. So can you talk a little more about that? Like what, because again, I'm struck, like when you're at, at the size that you are of 10 million plus of revenue, just you start getting to a point where, uh, yes, there's still some individual advisor productivity and metrics to look at, but at some point you just start looking at like the business and the aggregate, like how are we doing? So I, I really am curious to then to hear more like what what are the what are the particular Moss Adams ratios that you look at and find meaningful as a business? I mean you, you mentioned two, yeah. like clients, clients per advisor, revenue per advisor, or Moss Adams is like advisor professional to capture like people who are client facing, anybody who's client facing. Yeah. So, you know, we'll look at, I mentioned uh, active clients per for, per financial professional. We're on the high side. We're actually 111, which tells me a couple things. One, it's less than 150. So I have some capacity. Okay. And, and that's, that's very much intentional. Um, and then we say, we look at revenue per financial professional and we're actually high. Um, meaning, I would suggest that our uh, financial planners are are quite productive. If you have revenue be the measurement of productivity, well, because I guess you're at uh, well, I mean, roughly speaking, ten ten lead advisors and a little north of ten million of revenue. So your 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 revenue productivity is a million per advisor, a little bit lower if you put the associates into the into the denominator. But then you're a little over ten million in in the in the twelve people. So you're you're still like just under $900,000 of revenue per active financial professional, which is a correct big number. Yeah. I, I think benchmarks are, you know, seven, 750,000. Um, so that, you know, I think that's an important data point. It also, um, we, at least the story we, we've made up is our clients are a little bit smaller than um, the super on other uh, uh, midsize or super ensembles. Uh, we're, we're, our newer clients fortunately are a little bit upstream, but right. on average, we're a little bit um, lower and we have really good um, leverage between our financial professionals and our client service. That, that is, um, I would say that's, that's intentional. Um, One, and just the, the service dynamics of, you're not forcing yourselves into two to three in-person meetings per client. So you're the baseline sort of a one in-person and then a check-in call. And obviously you do more of clients calling and have more, but a lot of the time they don't once you're a couple of years into the yes. into the into the relationship. You're not necessarily doing an entire new financial plan, input all the data into money guide and output a report because instead you've invested in the database, the database builds 
the annual review report, which is automated down to like less than 15 minutes of prep time to generate the whole report. So you, you're, you know, that when you do that across 150 clients per advisor, like that adds up really fast into the amount of time savings, uh, uh, that comes back. And so it sounds like some of the, uh, some of the productivity metrics just drive, drive from that, that you found a good balance of, you know, we're, we're doing the work and clients are happy and, and retaining, uh, but we're not, we're not doing more than that to the point that then it impairs the productivity and capacity. Yeah. I mean, well, well said, and, um, you're right. And you've, you've done an article, the math, a lot of the advisor is, is in my experience is about the meeting time. And yep. when I do the math on 150 clients, one annual review meeting, a six-month check-in, maybe one other, there's plenty of time in the year for other things like continuing education, business development, conference. It, it's significant. So yeah. we're, we're comfortable with our 150 target. Yeah. Uh Where I was wrong in the past, Michael, was I used to think if a lead planner could manage 150 relationships and they were in meetings, that our CSA team could actually manage 200 relationships because they didn't have the meeting time. Hmm. And um, I was wrong about that. And we also target 150 for our our CSA team. And I'm actually thinking it might need to be closer to 125. So what what are the squeeze points that the CSAs are hitting? Um, the preparation for for meetings is is still challenging. Uh, one of the great things, like a lot of folks, we use Calendly for scheduling. I mean, that was a huge time saver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, before a meeting, we are still uh, mailing or emailing a I'll say a packet um, looking for updates and a return. When that comes back, it's actually our CSA team who is doing all the updates to both our proprietary database um, and right. a CRM. So yeah. th- there, it's it's still a significant time, even though I think we've made some improvements. I don't know what the next step but, is there, quite frankly. But I guess from the business productivity end, at least you've 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 managed to to push and delegate a lot of that work down to the CSAs, which is from the pure business end, like my staffing costs are lower for CSAs than it is for my lead financial advisors. So if I can, if I, if I have to stat, if I can increase my advisor capacity to 150, 150 clients per advisor, but I have to bring my CSA capacity down to 150 or lower, because some firms do run higher, that's, that's a good business trade-off. But that's better than running a hundred clients per advisor and two hundred clients per CSA because you now need more more advisors that are more expensive to the business than providing the more CSA support that's not as expensive to the business. Correct, and and obviously that the our CSA team has all the other day to day. We need checks, we need money wired, right. all right. of those uh, good things, and and I can't say they are a very productive uh, group and. Um, a non-partner, Andrew manages that group currently, and um, they they seem to really be be gelling uh, uh, right now. Quick aside, that group used to be all women. Uh, our last two hires happen to be two two young guys, uh, so it's a it's a really nice uh, diverse group. So, uh, 
so are 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 there any other sort of big Moss Adams ratios that you look at besides clients per active professional and revenue per financial professional, or or like those the big two bellwethers that you use? Uh, I know you you uh, are aware of uh, David Maester and managing a professional services firm. Mm-hmm. Um, I got introduced to that years ago, and and that's probably the first or second most uh, impactful uh, on me as how I uh, manage the business. And I love when he says, you know, the the ultimate measure of success in a partnership is or or should be um, profit per partner. And so looking at like pre-tax owner, uh, I'll say income per owner is, is important. Okay. And our numbers are slightly lower than uh, the mid-size ensemble, but but pretty close. Um, I think once the uh, my one of my partners, Matt, and and I, as we transition out, that'll I think probably uh, get even better. And then the other, you know, last is what's our profit. Unfortunately, like a lot of other firms, we've been at that 33, 34% the last few years. Um, 33, 34% profit margins? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, This year, um, we have budgeted actually closer to 23%. Well, that's a big, big dip and shift. So what's, what's bringing that down? Uh, apparently, in 2022, the uh, no. stock and bond market wasn't very good. Oh, that. <laughs> the market's supposed to rebound. It'll be like so fine by the end of the year. This is not a guarantee. Please do not go it, it, yeah. for investment results. But it, it, you know, there's a, I don't know, a good and bad here. Um, we, we did work a budget out to where it's uh, 24% is our budgeted net, net profit. And let's just round numbers. I mean, that's almost a million and a half dollars less, right? Yeah. Not insignificant. Um, but fortunately, I think we're big enough where we can, we can, make, we can do that. You know, um, we're not laying anyone off. No one's job is, is at risk. Um, partners will, um, if that's realized, will will make less money, and and that that's okay. That's how it's supposed to happen, I do believe. And and I we talk a lot about uh, finances with our our team in general, and they they know these these numbers. Um, and I try to stress, you know, the reason that we have to budget a a profit, and we didn't always budget a, a profit, quite frankly. Um, is number one is to protect jobs. Right. So when 2008, 2009, or what looked like was going to happen in 2020, no one had to worry about a job. Right. That's, that's the number one, you know, reason for profits. Yeah. And I, so it's always um, struck me. There's a lot of, a lot of chatter about there of just our, our advisory firm profit margins, you quote unquote too high, right? Just a lot of industries struggle to have like just double digit profit margins, not single digit. And you know, we we talk in the advisor industry about whether you know our 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 profit margin is a twenty something or a thirty something. But the caveat, as you as you note, is like, but we, but we deal with market downturns, and if you're on the AUM model, like you know, severe bear market that tanks the 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 market by thirty five to forty percent, even on a diversified portfolio, can tank it north of twenty percent. And so, if you don't have at least a twenty percent profit margin, uh, like you're going to go upside down in a bear market. Or conversely, like the one the primary reasons that most advisory firms try to keep at least a twenty something percent 
profit margin is that means you know when the bear markets come periodically your profit distributions might go to zero for a year but you don't actually have like a partner capital call where everybody has to pony money into the business or you have to fire people because you're out of revenue and like that that's just the reality of the of the cyclicality and and you know if you reflect that it might be a 20 something or low 30s profit margins but there's you know two out of every 10 years it's almost a zero because of the because the bear market like all of a sudden your average profit margin over a cycle is a bit lower and your risk adjusted profit margin you know adjust for risk is appropriate and all of a sudden it's like oh our business isn't like magically so much more profitable than anybody else's it just has to run a higher margin because it has way more revenue volatility than a lot of other industries uh, and we're a service industry. Like you, you can't lay people off in a down market because you have to service clients more in a down market. And if you do that, you death spiral your firm. So you have to keep enough padding to deal with the bear bear markets. Yeah, I remember uh, hearing the uh, it was uh, from Mark Tabersian the you know forty forty twenty right forty yeah. percent direct forty uh, percent overhead twenty percent profit margin, and I think that's probably it should still be a good benchmark. I was thinking the last couple years before 2022 being so good with markets that, you know, having a higher in the thirties was appropriate, but 20 has to be the the minimum. Yeah. Yeah. When when advisory firms I find get under 20, when the bear market cycles come, like things get really, really hard and tight and unpleasant really quickly. So it's a big, uh, it's a big dollar amount. Um, it's it's the the right thing. Fortunately, we have two two quarters in the books, uh, so we might surpass that. But um, that's how we approached our our budgeting process. And it, it's been interesting over the years. You know, I mean, we've we've gone from eat what you kill uh, to uh, certainly a, an ensemble, and we never used to worry about what the firm bottom line was. And and it's been um, it's been healthy, I think, since about 2015. That the budget process has really been about budgeting to a net profit number. So so now help us understand just the dynamics of uh, uh, of how uh, partners and partnership works. So how how do you, yeah. how do you added all these partners, and then as you noted, uh, um, all the founders are gone. So you're actually on, I guess, all. All next generation owners. I don't even know if this point if some are like the the third generation. If you've even had second generation owners ro- rotate out at this point. So help us understand how partnership works. Sure. This goes back to um, I suppose 2003 when our first founder retired uh, retired Estelle Wade. Is you know that was their first transition, and that was uh, eat what you kill. You know, she had a certain amount of revenue in in her silo, and the firm yeah. paid her on an earnout of thirty percent over five years or one point five multiple. It was pretty easy, right? I mean, money came in. Uh, if it didn't come in, she wasn't yeah. going to be paid. Yep. And, and you know, that's like relative to where we were twenty years ago, like that was pretty normal, standard, like thirty percent trail for five years. You're not doing the work anymore, so like pretty sweet wind down. Uh, uh, and off you go. Yeah. And then our next two founders, uh, they were 2014 and 2015. And I'm going to step back to 2009, if you'll allow me in a minute. But 
2014-15, their buyout was the same earnout method. So our three founders all, I'll just say, treated the same way, silo, eat what you kill, and okay. a, an earnout method. Okay. Okay. In 2009 was a significant strategic planning event, and um, we had an outside facilitator. And the catalysts were really a couple things. Two of our founders at the time, Dan and Marilyn, were, were starting to make retirement plans over the next five years and really wanted to, to see the, the center as this enterprise. And we needed a, a, a new structure to build this sustainable firm that was going to hopefully outlive them. So that was the okay. first catalyst. The second catalyst is we had a operations person or a non-financial planner uh-huh who we desired to be a partner. And yeah. having silos just wasn't conducive to having a non-financial planner as a partner. Right. If, if your whole partnership model is built around, you, you, you monetize the value of your client, your, your client revenue, there's literally nothing to monetize if you're in a non-advisory role. Because they don't have <laughs> revenue, they're not managing revenue. It just doesn't work. Uh, yep. So, you know, and I would say there are so many good things uh, about the eat what you kill or the silo structure. They're really like, you don't have to worry if your partner's slacking or taking a day off, you yep. know, they're, they're going to get paid. But as long as they cover their expenses, hey, that that's on, yep. on them. So there are some good, good things. Um, but we basically said, hey, no more eat what you, you kill. Um, and we were looking at a structure which was influenced by this David Maester's uh, managing a professional services firm. It's a structure he called a, a one firm firm model. And essentially, we made a decision that because the founders were going to be retired, we're going to separate them. They were treated the old way, but new partners going forward, we were going to have this new system. And okay. the, change, the change really fell on Matt Chope and myself because we were the G2 partners. Okay. Okay. And I know you, you've heard this before, but I think the, the messiest or the, mo- the biggest challenge when firms go from silo to uh, this one firm firm or an ensemble is partner compensation. Yep. Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, like it, it's all fun and easy to say we're all in it together until eventually you get to the point of like, but my client book is bigger than yours. And <laughs> it sounds cool for all of us to be in this together until I'm literally like, but us together means my comp goes negative 100. <laughs> and, you, and your comp goes plus yeah. 100 because suddenly we're feeding off the same trough, even though I put more into it. Like then all of a sudden things get a little awkward. Like you just, you have to figure out what to do with that or about that or how to remedy that or reconcile it or make people feel like they're whole on it. And if fortunately, um, you know, we had Matt and I had a very good uh, relationship. Um, I don't know if we'll get into this, but we also had the benefit of a couple founders being at the firm and it's a terrible analogy, but I'm going to use it. It still was like the parents were in the house living and could help smooth things over. Uh-huh. Okay. But it, it was. And, and so we decided, hey, our new compensation model going forward is uh, even partners. We're going to be salary, incentive compensation, and a partner distribution. We're going to target 
partner or financial planner compensation at the Tabersian 40%. Okay. And if I, neither one of us needed to take a pay cut, fortunately. And the reason was we were, uh, clients were transitioning to us from the two founders that were still in the business. So um, we could, I'll just say we could justify and they were, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking, subsidizing a little bit. So okay. we didn't have that that real awkward part of, hey, your income's going to go down significantly and mine's going up. But it stayed it stayed relatively flat for a few years. Whereas if we were on an eat what you kill, it definitely would have gone up. Oh, so in essence, like these probably aren't the right numbers, but something in the effect of, you know, it's 10, 15 years ago, you're early in your careers, you've got whatever it is UAA. You've got a $30 million book and a founder who's got a $100 million book who's transitioning out. So they're shifting clients over to you because that's part of the transition plan for them to exit. So if you had been on an e, if you had stayed on the eat what you kill model, your income would have ramped up as their client revenue moved over to you. Instead, you didn't you didn't get the ramp up of client revenue coming over to you because you had converted yourself to salary plus plus incentive comp kinds of structures but that means the firm was becoming more profitable because you weren't ramping up your advisor comp and so at some point after a few years this starts showing up in profit distributions particularly as the founders wind their way out that that's the great great summary of it yes okay so it was it was it was challenging, but like you said, not as challenging as if there would have been this massive pay cut or a pay cut, because that's when people start digging in, right, and say, "Yeah, yeah. I love change. Just don't make make sure it doesn't apply to me." Yeah, or I mean, what I what I find for most advisory firms, it, like if they really get stuck there, they actually end up with basic intra partner transactions, or right? it's like the the you know. The advisor who has a seven hundred thousand revenue base and the advisor that has a three hundred thousand dollars revenue base says they want to come together and make an ensemble firm, so they're going to draw evenly from a million dollar firm. Except it's like, but I I brought seventy percent of this, you brought thirty, so I'm not not want to be shared, but don't really want to like take myself down from seventy to uh, uh, to fifty when I had the seventy that. A lot of partners, I find at least in those scenarios, like the, the advisor with the smaller book basically buys a portion of the of the firm equity or contributes some dollars in uh, to to transition that. So if if you're bringing seventy percent of the client revenue, I'm bringing thirty percent of client revenue. Like I have to buy twenty percent from you to equalize us, and then we're equal. You brought you brought a certain amount of revenue. I brought a smaller revenue plus a cash buy in. And then we can be equal going forward. Right. The person who was higher might take a step back in in comp, but they get a check for the for the portion of their client. So that appeases the other person at least for a period of time, right? And then I, if you really believe you can build a bigger thing be- together, better, right? Which is ideally why you're creating a a one firm ensemble model, like by the time you get a couple of years into that, everybody should be taking a percentage of a larger pie and be doing better in the long run. Yeah. Um, <laughs> growth solves a lot of challenges. Yes. Uh, as long as there there's growth. But, you know, if there was, um, we did not have, let's say Matt and I did not have the same salary. Right, um, right. 
I became the, uh, we named a managing partner at that time. That was me. Um, it was interesting. We, we actually paid me separately for that role. It was a minimal amount, at least in, in my mind, but it was a recognition of this new role. So you had like, I don't know what the numbers were, but yeah, yeah. I get like $150,000 a comp for my advisor role, but then I also get $50,000 of extra comp because I'm also wearing the managing director hat. Fair. Yes. Okay. Yes. And and so, you know, the the, the next clunkiness uh, was in the 2012 when we essentially um, offered partnership to this, I'm going to say, operations partner. And the question was, how are they going to buy in? And we're we're in a much different, much better place now. But in 2012, this person bought in based on the retained earnings of the business. And let's just get an example. Let's say we kept $250,000 in the business to, you know, meet payroll, cash flow, float. Well, if they wanted to buy 10%, that was $25,000. They paid $25,000 for 10% of the business. I'm using the word clunky. Um, there's probably a better word. It was, um, we didn't know any better. And it was a very um, wise investment by this person. So they basically only had to pay, like, essentially they, they only had to pay for a percentage of the the retained earnings, not the actual like ongoing cash flow correct earning that was still flowing. Uh, yeah. So okay. you could say even at that point, let's just say, you know, earnings were a profit was two hundred and fifty thousand and we used a multiple of six, right? I mean, probably the the right buy-in was six times the amount that was the buy-in. Right. I mean, yeah, they uh, essentially they essentially they if well, if your float is about an annual year's worth of profits, like basically they got to buy in for one times profits. Yeah. <laughs> for, for their, for their sake. Okay, and so that, anyone, that went relatively well. If anyone's listening and they are going to make that deal, uh, you know, give give me give me a call. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that changed in- But and, it would be go a, good, a good note and reflection, right? Like just, you know, the things we do as we're figuring out how to run and build and scale the scale the business. Like, I mean, you know, we uh, fun to reflect on it, but how. like that was an actual deal. Someone got that deal, right? Like that's actually how that person got to do their <laughs> buy-in, right? That actually happened. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and, and again, we wanted this person as a partner. It, it seemed, you know, at the time fair. So, Hey, life, life is good. Um, fortunately, we um, worked with Philip Palaviv uh, in 2015, and we're something where he helped us develop. We call Center Path to Partner, and it is our guide for everyone how to become a part uh, partner at the center. What are the terms? How it is done? And it also included a new valuation method. Okay, so so can you? Can you can you guide us through the guide? Like, just how does it work now? Like, what are the terms? What is the valuation method? How do you do this? At this sure. Point? You know, the first uh, important part that um, is we identify traits that who we're looking for in partners. And uh, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. It, it also these um, traits characteristics um, led to us saying goodbye to an existing partner. So. 
they're, they're you know, we're, we're looking for people who certainly um, are passionate and, and want to live by our mission, our values, you know, our, our, our vision. Um, they have to be able to manage them themselves be, before they even try others. And that doesn't always happen. Um, they need to be someone who, for example, wants to create a great place for people to work, not just be productive, but we want a great place that people are proud to work and they you know, have to respect and, and treat all team members with respect. You've talked about, I think, this paradoxical struggle between, I'm going to say, like autonomy and what we call intra-partner cooperation. And, and that's not easy for everyone. Yep. Like, you got you got to be driven, but it can't be all about you, and it's got to fit within uh, you, with your other partners. And so we came up with a, a, a criteria. We have um, guidelines for financial planners as well as operations folks, because again, we're not um, we don't have restrictions on like the number of partners or the types of positions. Um, but I do tell the team it's very common or normal that the financial planners, the the majority of the owners, are probably going to be the professionals, the financial planners. It's it's like a law office, even I mean, yeah, right. I mean that's that's just normal. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would mention is in our document, you know, we we hope that there's no one or two partners that have a controlling ish uh, interest, and right now. Um, we do have two people with a, a slightly controlling uh, interest. We're going to be, I think in a year and a half, we'll be out of that situation, but I think that's healthy for the business. So, so meaning you, I mean, in essence, like no, no individual partner would even have more than a 25% stake. So that's no two can even get to 50. Like you'd, you'd, you'd have to at least get three people together to drive. Correct. Something. Correct. And I have this in my mind. I'd, I'd, I'd love to be at a place where uh, we had 10 partners and they were all near 10%. Okay. That, that would be a goal. So right now I think we have, um, there's two people that total about 55%, if I'm correct. And, okay. um, but we have plans where the next 18 months that should, uh, that should be done. So like why the, why the push to to get away from that or like why, why the push to, 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 to disseminate it that broadly? Yeah. I don't know that I have a, um, I just think a true partnership, um, shouldn't be concentrated. I mean, I, I think too many times firms, uh, are concentrated ownership and, um, there, in my opinion, there should never, ever be said a junior partner. You're a partner, or, you know, with full rights or you're not. Right. Um, I think we do a d- disservice. That's, that, that's an aside. But I, I just think um, the firm has a better chance of weathering storms if one or two people aren't um, having all the say. That's that's just a, a you know an, a, an opinion, that. and we haven't I mean, been it, able to get there just from the financial standpoint. We can't, uh, you know, we can't sell uh, an, enough quick enough to get there, but we're we're making progress. Okay, so so you've got sort of some I don't know like psychographic, men, you know, the sort of mentality criteria of just you know you you have to be partner material by by kind of the. The framework that you set, like ready to contribute the firm and wanting to build a good place to work and being able to show interpartner cooperation. Uh, 
So what what else de- like determines or sets who who gets a who gets a partnership opportunity? So for financial planners, we have some guidelines and I'll share a few. For example, we want that that financial planner to have responsibility of a million dollars in revenue or more. We want them to have a current uh, target of 150 clients that they manage. You know, if you're a planner, we want to see that you manage client expectations and you're like the rest of partners where you're 98% retention and above. A big one, you that person has to have demonstrated that they can actually bring in business. They they can contribute growth. Um, so, okay. so if you, we, if you we, want a piece of the pie, you have to actually show a track record of making the pie bigger. It, yes. And I can be um, a little crude or offensive perhaps with some of my team members, not on purpose, but like a good service advisor is really important. But to be a partner, you have to bring in business. You have to grow the pie. At some point, you have to be a donor, right? You've had to have brought in more revenue than your income supports because you're supporting other people. Mm -hmm. Um. So th- those are the main, um, I'll say, quantitative. Um, we struggle quantitatively with our operations partners, but usually, um, like if your client service, they're managing uh, at least seven people. Um, they probably have a sizable budget that they're managing, and they've shown somehow to improve profitability and improve the quality of our uh, structure, our, our processes. That one's a little bit harder to, to have quantitative right. um, criteria. Okay. So, so for those who meet the criteria, how does this, how does this work? Like, do you, do you evaluate once a year? Is it a continuous rolling thing? Like, do partners vote about whether you've met the criteria? Does just one person make the call? Yeah. Like, how do you... What's the, what, where's the process actually kick off to evaluate whether someone's getting in? So our, uh, right now our, our path to partnership document says that all partners, uh, vote on new partners and every, um, June, the partner group, um, uh, confirms what the valuation for the next, uh, January any equity transaction that happens in the next January is done in the preceding June. That's also when any invitations to a new partner are extended. So we say, hey, partners have um, you know, discussed, they'd like to offer you a partnership. Here's the valuation. Uh, as an initial purchase, you can decide to purchase a minimum of 1% and a maximum of 5%. That's your initial purchase. Okay. And and how do you decide whether it's one to five? Like just they get to choose they do. how much they're buying? They, they do. And so if they're buying in and they set the one to five, like who who sells? Do you like, are you issuing shares and everybody takes pro rata dilution or do you, do you have to match a seller to a buyer? We have been very fortunate since 2014-ish that we've had people retiring. Okay, and so the conversations, uh, again, knock on wood, fortunately, have been uh, good. Is like, hey, Lori, you're retiring in two years. We want uh, Michael to be a partner. He wants to buy three percent. It would really make sense if you would agree to sell your three percent. Okay, 
and that has worked out for us fine. Our document does say if no one is willing to sell their shares, then it's pro rata. Okay. Interesting. So, so like there, you you can actually have sort of forced pro rata selling if the business decides it wants to add a partner and no one else is specifically willing to sell. That's correct. So, what happens if it goes the other way? Like someone leaves who has a larger stake and you don't have enough partners coming in. Who who gets the who gets the preference on what to buy if there's actually more buying in play? Because I'm presuming at some point existing partners may want to buy more. Yeah. It again starts. Um, our document says pro rata. Okay. Right. And and we have had a, uh, in 2018, we had a 30% owner exit. So 30% was, was available. Okay. And we did the existing partners purchase pro rata. Um, since then, uh, again, fortunately, it has worked out where we have uh, Matt, who's uh, retiring in a couple of years. For, for personal reasons, he actually wanted to reduce his stake by a couple more percent uh, in January. Okay. And one of our ex- one of our existing partners said, "You know what? Yeah, I'm 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 willing to do that." So we didn't have to do pro rata. And and then how do you set the valuation on this? Like, is is it? formula based do you go get external valuations every time there's a transaction like how, how are you handling valuation yeah philip and his team um helped us with a template and essentially um it's a multiple of ebitda and there is a oh a worksheet that goes into figuring out what ebitda should be based on a variety of factors but i'll tell you it comes out to be somewhere each year is 6 to 6.2 and what we're doing is in june we look at the last 2 years of actual ebitda and then we project the current year the next 6 months and we use those 3 years in in calculating ebitda Okay, so oh, because because you do this in in June, so like the June twenty twenty three deal for this year essentially will be based on EBITDA of twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two, and the forecasted full year twenty twenty three EBITDA, which will have six months already baked in in the second half of the year that you're you're projecting out. It's just Correct. like a, a straight three year average of EBITDA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I mean, obviously we're, we're trying to uh, do something to even um, EBITDA out. Um, it hasn't been an issue. I suppose there could be some games played, um, you know, depending on if you might be a buyer or seller come uh, in January. Right, right. Um, we, we haven't had those those issues. Okay. And, um, uh, and so then how is this? handled from a financing perspective, like down payment, you know, firm finance, they have to go get bank financing. Like how do you, how do you manage just the affording the cash flows for it? So first we do um, ask for a 10% down payment uh, from, okay. from the, in, in the initial purchase. And then our, uh, our document, our path to partnership says that the firm will guarantee financing for that first initial up to 5% purchase. Okay. Historically, the last several years, it's been all seller financed. Okay. And it's just been a, I mean, it's, it's worked out fortunately that way for both the, the seller as well as the, uh, you know, the, the person, the new partner. Um, 
slightly lower rate um, than some of the other banks. Um, I was going to say, like, what is there a typical like what rate you set and just what what term you set over how many years it's financed? Yes, uh, they, they've been seven, seven, seven year. I'm sorry, seven uh, year amortization. Okay, and rates I think have been like five, five and a half percent recently. Yeah, I obviously shit might might shift this year's numbers versus last year's numbers, but at least if you go back a year, our rates hadn't been moving up very very yeah. much. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, okay. So, so I guess I I I can see just overall like you're you're buying at roughly six times earnings, but you get to finance over seven years, and your uh and you you put a ten percent down payment in, so you're 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 financing 90% of the purchase price over seven years when you're paying six times earnings. So the money should be pretty darn close to cash flowing itself. Yeah, there's a little tax drag probably the first two years. Yeah. Um, that that's that's fair. But you know, the, a lot a lot goes uh, a lot of talk on on multiples, right? Especially now. Yeah. I mean, even today's news was uh, another PE deal, and I'm sure it was at 10, 12, maybe 14 times EBITDA. Um, the bottom line is, I think there's a, a reasonable justification that internal transactions should be done at a discount. I, you know, the the one is these part people who you want to be partners probably had some influence on several years of growth. I mean, yeah. they, they, it's not like they're they're a third party; they're they're new to the business. Yeah. And the second might even be more impor- uh, important or critical is it's not going to work. If you have too high of a multiple, yeah. So it it seems fair, um, and yet I think a, a founder or someone who's selling equity, their worst uh, fear might be: well, if I'm selling at six, and in five years these folks turn around and sell it at fourteen, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't feel good if you're if you're next generation buyers, then like, yeah, I actually think these multiples are too good for me. I'm going to take them, even though you had to sell to me at the other number. Yeah. So are you, are you trying to limit that in the like shareholder agreement or process or just that's a risk for better or worse? It it's a current risk for better or worse right now. Our, I should um, go back. Our founders when they did their earnout, or we paid their earnout, they actually did put in a provision if shares were sold at a higher multiple within X years that they would be compensated. Okay. Yeah. So it's 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 a common provision. I I think uh, we just have not done it. Okay. So so as you look back on this journey over the past like 20, 20 plus years that you've been in the firm, like what surprised you the most about how like the path of building and scaling up the business? We kind of talked about it just now, the, the complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you'd like to think that uh, you could make things simpler, but whether it's just uh, some legacy, you know, t- technology sometimes, it's, it's just, it can be a very complex business and and yet we know that if we take care of clients, both external and internal clients, that um, this is a very good profession. It, it it's a very rewarding 
profession. We get to have immediate feedback from clients and and see that we're making a, a difference every day. And I have to share this one story. I mentioned one of our former partners who I'm her planner and we're having a review meeting and she's in North Carolina in an affluent area now. And she says, Tim, you, you have to know this. People really need you. Hmm. I mean, it was just this great affirmation of someone in her position to say, people really need you. And, and so I, I think uh, we're very fortunate. Yeah. So I always find it interesting that dynamic is you're growing and scaling that there tends to be this feeling of like, oh, we're just a little bit bigger. We got a little more revenue and like we can hire one or two more people to solve this problem that you were dealing with. And like everything will finally be okay and settle down. And, and you never actually get there because then it gets a little bigger and like some other problem crops up in some other part of the business. So you have to put another person or a few over there and then you solve that, but then something else comes up and then the whole thing's just bigger. So there's just more complexity to it that there there really is a, you know, as you know, like it's a good business and it's very remunerative. So this doesn't have to be a woe is me kind of thing for for scaling up firms. But I do find there's this mentality of like, if we just got a little larger, we could solve, we could solve these problems. And what happens in practice is just like mo money, mo problems. You like, get the benefit of bigger problems. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know what? And, and what I, I do love though, is it's, it's never ending, right? I mean, it's, uh-huh. there's always a challenge and it, it's, it's from a cool standpoint, uh, never ending, always trying to improve. And once you get to 1.5, we're saying, okay, you know, our vision 2030, we want to get to 3.5 and, and how are we going to do that? And let's start executing on it. So what was the low point for you on this journey? How much time do you have? We could probably do a whole show on this. <laughs> You know, I, I think back to like 1998. I'm I'm struggling on my own. I hung my own shingle. Um, I'm going to law school at night, working all day. My wife's at home with two young kids, and I get to tell her that you know, not only do we have $120,000 of uh, school debt, uh, we got $100,000 of credit card debt that we got to earn our way out of. You cool. know, I look at. 2008, 2009, you, when I- You, you racked up $100,000 of credit card debt while the business was getting, I, while you were like building your first practice in yeah, 1998. I absolutely did. Yes. Oof. And um, always thought I could earn my way out of it. Um, but at that time, I, you know, I, was, I was a pretty good borrower and I was a really hard worker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I, I've, I've never been low on, on confidence, thanks to my mother. But, um, you know, having a, a wife at home who was in my corner every day is yeah. the only way I didn't um, mm. I didn't lose it. But, yeah, that that was hard. Yeah. Um, you know, I always have taken, I'll say, the long view and, and made investments. Um, you'll love this one. I have on my credenza here a uh, cold call Cowboy Productions credit card from the 7500 I spent on audio files or audio cards. Remember the audio business yeah, card? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd that work out for you? Well, it didn't produce 7500 but you know, it reminds me that um, I, I'm. I, it's okay to take risks. And um, I, I've taken a lot and, and I can say that more than not, they, they've worked out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, like 2008, 2009, after 17 years, uh, I felt like I was an overnight success finally. 
starting to make money. And, and then I had to give up a third or a half my, my income so we didn't have to lay anyone off. Yep. Um, you know, asking a partner in 2018 to, to leave the firm was absolutely uh, miserable um, time period. It was uh, emotional. Just, it, it was distracting. They weren't, they weren't a good fit. Or like other challenges. No, I I I think that's fair. When I I mentioned some of the uh, qualitative, uh, you know, items, characteristics that we're looking for in partners, it just was was no longer a, a good fit. Okay. And um, but that doesn't make it any less um, messy and yucky. Yeah. Right. Um. So you know that the next one is uh, uh recently remote work. I, I'm I'm beginning a a more of a fan of remote work, but I'm afraid that it's leading to kind of this transactional relationship between employees yeah. and and the firm, and we spend so much time on on being a great place and offering a great place to work. You know that 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 concerns me. Hmm. So, so this is when I'm supposed to say all those yeah. have led to personal growth opportunities. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what was the um uh the very the very first uh, uh episode we we did on the podcast um Rick Kaler loved loved to talk about these and and he he just he calls all of them afgos another freaking growth opportunity <laughs> lucky you yes another another afgo so so as you reflect on this like what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you like twenty something years ago as your coming into the into the center and getting started. Yeah, you know, I for me something I'm I'm working on is trying to be really op- more open-minded and and more curious. I've been telling my myself like be open to being wrong, like uh, that I don't know all the answers. I think that's that's important. But as far as like what I would do different, what I would regret, my I'm just not wired that way. I'm I'm always kind of like what's what's next. I'll, I'll use some of those things as learning, but um, maybe the last thing I would say is you you gotta you gotta work hard. If if you and I are the same uh, intellectual uh, you know capacity, and I work fifty hours and you work forty hours, well, there's a good chance I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little bit better than you. I mean, just mm-hmm. you gotta work hard. And the other is, um, don't be afraid to stay in the box. Everyone wants to talk about getting out of the box. Sometimes it makes sense to just stay in the box and have your three or four things. Make sure you're treating clients mm. well. You're writing. You're speaking. I don't know that it has to be any more complicated than that. It, it's okay just to do the good, just to do the core things well. Yes. Uh, so, any other advice you would give maybe the younger, newer advisors getting getting started today? Well, fortunately, unlike you and I, I think is, you know, we had to go through the life insurance or the brokerage, yeah. right? The uh-huh. channels to get where we are. Fortunately, there are more opportunities. And I had this conversation with one of our, our younger team members uh, today. You, you got to try your best to look at three years, always three years and not just today. Like, be in a place where you're going to have good mentors uh, and they don't even need to know that you're mm-hmm. a mentor. It doesn't have to be formal, but yeah. get around people that you truly respect um, how they are, the person that they are, the planner that they are. Cause I think that is so, so important in the early years. 
Love it. Love it. So, so as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is the, the word success mean very different things to different people. And so you're on this wonderful track of success with the advisory business as it you know, crosses 10 million plus of revenue and third generation of owners. And so the, the business is going incredibly well now. Uh, but how do you define success for yourself at this point? So what episode is this, Michael? What episode is this? We are on episode 335. So I will have heard 334 <laughs> times that you've asked this question. And each time I wondered how I might answer yeah. it. Uh, you know, as I look back, uh, I, I was, I, I'm a free lunch program kid from Dearborn, Michigan. So achieving a certain level of financial stability has always been a part of my definition of personal success. Hmm. I know that's not always, uh, you know, the, the, the great thing to say, but it, it's absolutely true. Um, certainly over time, the goalposts of success has changed. And I think of, you know, George Kinder's questions. And so success for me now is certainly a lot more about relationships, uh, you know, making sure healthy, loving marriage, uh, which has been 30 years, quite frankly, with my wife. I got three kids that I don't know if I'm their hero, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they like me and think I'm, I'm doing okay. <laughs> you know, I've had, what, 10 business, uh, successful business partner relationships. I'd like to think I played a role in positively influencing our, our growing team. So, you know, our, our mission is improving lives uh, through financial planning done right. Um, success to me is just making sure that I'm improving the, the lives of, of those that are around me. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.